The first five years for a child are so vital and important for learning social skills, basic language, numeracy, motor skills, and so, so much more. Today on our podcast, we're going to learn what makes young children ready for kindergarten. And we're going to hear tips on how to prepare your little one from early learning specialist, Dr. Melissa King. Today, I'd also like to welcome a special guest host, Latisse Dennis from K-12. From homes like yours, this is K-12 on learning. Here we discuss the K-12 online learning experience. We talk online schools, the challenges and strengths of online learning, and explore everything from kindergarten to career readiness in high school. There's a lot to talk about these days when it comes to online schools and learning from home. I'm Heidi Higgins. I've experienced the K-12 online world for nearly 20 years. I've seen it work in my home with my own children and now with my grandchildren. I would like to help you see how it can work for you. Welcome to K-12 on Learning. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Latisse Dennis, and I'm on the social media team here at K-12 and also the mom to three wonderful kids. And I'm so excited to be here today with Dr. Melissa King, who is joining us to discuss kindergarten readiness. Dr. King has actually been with us at K-12 as the Director of Early Learning. She helped to develop our Embark program. She is also the author of many published books and journal articles, as well as teaching graduate courses at the University of Virginia, George Mason University, and Kaplan University. And what else have you taught? I also spent about 20 years in the public schools, teaching everything from pre-K all the way up through grade eight. So I've had a lot of experience with all kinds of kids at all ages and loved every minute. For a lot of parents, the leap into kindergarten can be an emotional and stressful and very uncertain time. So I'm so excited to hear your advice for us parents who might not be sure if our kids are ready or not, or might be struggling with this transition in our lives. It's funny you say that because it's been a long time since my own children went to kindergarten, but I remember those days when each one of them stepped on the bus and took their first foray into the world of formal schooling. And I think many of us as moms, you know, shed a few tears because we realized (laughs) that's when they're they're really going off on their own. So it is is a a time of great importance. It definitely is. Okay, so now let's just jump into it. So help explain to us what exactly is kindergarten readiness? Kindergarten readiness is a generalized concept to help adults try to determine determine whether a child has the prerequisite skills, knowledge, and understanding to thrive in the formal world of structured education. It's not an exact science, and there's no perfect way to size up a child's readiness to take that big step forward. And each child is unique and special. We must always remember not to judge any child against the level of performance of another child. It's not a contest. (laughs) We also need to remember that parents like yourself and families are a child's first teachers, and they know their child best. Research tells us that the first five years of a child's life set the foundation for all that follows. In fact, 85% of brain growth occurs during that critical period. Wow. 
In addition, a child's basic personality and emotional template is established during those five years. So we really do need to be paying attention to what's happening and what children are ready for next. Experts describe the progression of child development as a continuum or a general sequence of skills and competencies that emerge in a particular order. However, the timing and the exact chronological age of when any child reaches those milestones may differ. So there's variation from child to child. So when we say kindergarten readiness, we're really referring to a set of basic benchmarks that are typical for many young children in our society. But remember, it's not a recipe. <laughs> Therefore, decisions about a child's readiness for kindergarten should be based on whether that particular child meets certain identified criteria, demonstrates certain behaviors that are generally observed in other children. It's not a formula, but it's a set of descriptive characteristics. That's just usually what we say about kindergarten readiness. And I like how you said that it's different for every kid. I know in my experience with my three kids, they were all three at different stages of readiness mm -hmm. to go off, and they all did well. So it's definitely dependent on the child and not the formula, like you said. I like that point. All right, Dr. King, can you talk to us a little bit about the domains of kindergarten and why each one is important? Sure. The domains are sets of skills, behaviors, and common understandings that characterize kindergarten readiness. And there are two big sets. One is what we call the fundamental benchmarks, and that includes social-emotional learning, okay. language development, and physical development. And the other big domain is what we call the academic arena, and that includes early literacy, emergent numeracy, and approaches to learning and cognition or thinking. Right. So let's take a, a look and see what's covered in each one of those subsets. So social emotional learning, also called SEL, is an individual's capacity for self-regulation, okay. empathy and self-expression, self-confidence, and level of independence. And this is a very important area for, for parents and families to think about when making decisions regarding a child's readiness for kindergarten. It's often overlooked or understated, but it probably is one of the most important right. areas. Included in SEL would be the child's ability to pay attention and focus on a given task, such as putting a puzzle together for a certain length of time without getting too distracted, following directions and persisting with the task, such as buttoning a shirt or zipping up a jacket, playing cooperatively with others and managing frustration that might come up, such as when another child doesn't want to share their toys. Yes. Does, does, the, does, does the child have the skill to be able to manage that kind of common frustration that happens? Right. And how well can the child control their own impulses and respect right. boundaries, such as refraining from an angry outburst when things don't go the way that they, they want them to, and accepting no as a response in some situations when there's a certain behavior that's that's not allowed. So that's what we call the domain of SEL or social emotional learning. Very, okay. very important. 
Language development is another big one. And language development includes receptive language skills. That's listening and understanding what language comes to you, comes into your brain. The second aspect is expressive language, and that's your own verbal ability to verbalize and vocalize your own ideas, thoughts, feelings, and needs. And basic communication is another one. So does the child understand that the purpose of language is to negotiate that space with others and to be able to express and to exchange ideas with others. So we want to make sure that any child who enters kindergarten has a capacity to be able to communicate basic needs and to be able to express themselves with others. So the other fundamental area in those basic benchmarks is physical development. And that would include both fine and gross motor skills, coordination and balance, (laughs) use of tools and self-care. So some examples might be the child's ability to stack blocks, one on top of the other, child's ability to use crayons, to have success with buttons and zippers and snaps, being able to copy simple shapes and figures on a piece of paper, using basic tools such as a spoon, a toothbrush, maybe even a pair of scissors. And in the gross motor skill area, being able to catch a ball, throw a ball, run, hop, jump, skip, or even ride a tricycle. So those are all included in that domain of physical development. When we look at the academic domains, the top of the list is early literacy, and that includes some very, very important components that will make it possible for the child to learn to read and write. So first off is just the child's phonological awareness, and that means the sounds of the language. Are they sensitive to the music, the intonation patterns, the, the actual sounds of letters and words? Can they put those things together in understanding and using language? Their knowledge of print and writing conventions can they understand that if I if I draw this shape or I draw this symbol, I'm actually communicating something to someone else. So we have shared meaning with that when we use written conventions. The child's ability to draw things to express ideas. I want to draw my dog. And whether or not that looks like a dog is not the point. <laughs> but it's the child's understanding that they can take that idea and put that idea down for someone else to also see. And then another big subset in early literacy is the child's response to literature. And this is really important. So you want a child to understand how to hold the book properly and how to turn the pages, moving from the beginning to the end, understanding that print goes from left to right in the English language. They should also be able to make predictions about stories and maybe retell a story. In this one, the bears in the night, they got out of bed and they made their pathway over to see the owl on the hill. So can the child listen intently and then retell that story? Is the child familiar enough with listening and following along that they can then paraphrase and say back to a person who, who is listening with them, what actually happened in that story, make their own narrative. Also, the child should be able to discriminate and identify individual sounds that are part of our language. Um, Babies and infants actually have the capacity to understand every sound from every language and to make every sound from every language, which sounds really phenomenal, but it's actually true. But they refine that understanding when they're exposed to particular languages. So in our case, it's the English language. And so 
When children have that capacity, we want to make sure that we take advantage of the moments we have that with them to build that common understanding of how our language sounds. Children who are moving into the kindergarten year should be able to recognize and name some of the letters of the alphabet, but not all. And that's different than saying A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and singing the song. Most children learn that by rote. And most children think LMNOP is one letter. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we want to make sure that when we talk about print conventions and letters, that they understand that that letter A is something. That's a discrete entity. And I can find that letter in a book or on a piece of paper. The child should also be able to write their own name. It doesn't need to be perfect. And the letters don't need to be the same size. But they should understand if my name is Lily, it's an L-I-L-Y on the paper and probably recognize their own name. When we move into emergent numeracy, or what most people commonly think of as math, we're talking about the child's awareness of patterns and order. Okay. Being able to distinguish and compare relative quantities, recognizing basic shapes, circles and squares and triangles. We're not talking hexagons here, <laughs> but, um, but we're talking the basic shapes. They should be able to sort things, and they should be able to count from 1 to 10. Okay. Many children entering kindergarten can count on that, but it's it's not necessary. They're going to learn that. What's most important is that they understand conceptually that as I move from 1 to 10, those numbers represent a known quantity. And as I count from 1 to 10, guess what? 10 is bigger than 1. There's more stuff in a group of 10 than there is in a group of 1. When we talk about emergent numeracy, we're not talking only about numbers. We're talking about some of those more basic concepts that children need to have in terms of logic and analysis. And the final subset I want to talk about is approaches to learning and cognition. So at this point, when a child is about five, they should have the capacity to solve some problems, basic problems. They should be interested in participating in group activities, and some of those activities might help them solve problems. They should also be asking questions to seek new information. Part of this subset is the child's own enthusiasm for learning something new, their eagerness to find out more about the world. So we want to stimulate those growing brains. We want to give them lots of experiences that, that, that give them positive feedback so that when they, when they do have success, they want more. Yes. Um, we want the child to be interested in learning. We also want to encourage creative application of those ideas. So okay. imagination is part of it, and we're always looking to allow young children some space to go beyond what is and to think creatively and be right. curious. So that's that's what we're looking for when we talk about the domain of thinking skills. Okay. Well, thank you for that explanation. Do you find that for any of these domain sets that children that have siblings that are part of a larger family rate higher or lower in these assessments or even children that have been to preschool or not? It's a great question and I'm really glad you asked mm-hmm. it because parents would often like us to say things like yes. this. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to go back to what I said in the very beginning about yeah. each child being unique and special. Right. And even if you had 10 children, they would all be dynamically different. And birth order or size of the body, all of that is, is really not what we're able to say anything definitive about, meaning that this child is going to succeed or that one isn't. Okay. So every child 
child deserves to be observed and understood for who they are. And one of the toughest parts about being a parent of young children is being able to accept that and know that what I got used to with the first child is very different with the second yes. child. It's not really wrong that that child is different. It's just that I have to learn all over again right. how to interact with that child because they're very different than the first one. Exactly. So um, we have dis- different dispositions, and a lot of that's in their DNA. Children are born to be different. Right. So in reference to your question, I think that we should be careful about expectations like that. Right. We should understand that every child is an open book when they enter the world, and we want to give them rich experiences that help them to succeed and do their best. Okay, great. So Dr. King, what can you tell us a little bit about how children learn? Children are amazing creatures, and when you think about all that they learn in the first few years of life, you can't help but be impressed. They're masters of observation and imitation, keen imaginations, and unbridled curiosity. It's really incredible. So let's think about how they accomplish what they accomplish in those those early years. First of all, I want to talk about play. This is serious business for a child. Play is a child's work. Yeah. Not the way we think about play as something extra. This is their job. Children need lots of opportunities to engage with materials and to ga- engage with others so that they can explore their world and they can approach play creatively. So what we want to be sure of is to provide them with open-ended materials so that Mm -hmm. unstructured play is part of that play experience. Not something that follows a set of prescribed instructions, but something that they get to work with and make decisions about. So wooden blocks are terrific. Lego blocks are terrific. Things like this that they can they yes. can make choices about, and they can they can have a whole bin of blocks and decide how it's going to be put together. Um, stacking cups like this that can go multiple ways. You can use them for sequence. You can use them for patterns. Every child that I ever heard of on the planet loves Play-Doh or yes. <laughs> something soft that they can work with their hands. Tactile things that allow them to engage all of their senses. So we want to give the child enough of a variety of those kinds of open-ended materials so that play is engaging. Right. And I know for my kids, they always liked playing with the box that the toy came in yeah. more so than the toy itself because right. they could be creative and cut it up and That's right. use their imagination. That's right. I never throw out a box. I, yes. you know, I have a whole collection of them. And it's funny that children will find many ways to use them. Right. I make a garage for you know the car. I make a barn for the sheep, whatever it is. That's um, right. Yes. It's so true. <laughs> also, they learn from interacting with peers and interacting with adults as well. Because when they engage with others, there's a healthy give and take. I have some ideas, that person has some ideas. We negotiate that space. And while we're doing that, we're communicating with each other. And so we're learning things from each other. And that that, that really elevates the brain growth and boosts their thinking. So having time for your child to be with others, not just the parents or the family, but others as well is really beneficial. The third thing I would say is a variety of rich experiences so that the child has some novelty in their life. So it's wonderful to have routines and wonderful to have everything that I'm familiar with at my house, but guess what? I also need to go out and explore the world. So nature walks, going to parks, going to 
to the playground where there are other people um, doing other things will expose the child to some novelty, give the child some new things to think about, and it will also help them to build some risk tolerance. So as they engage with things that are unexpected or new things, they have to maybe think about something unexpected. And this helps them understand that it's all right if I encounter something I'm not familiar with and I want to explore a little bit more. So I think we need to be sure that we give them plenty of time for discovery. And this, in turn, can actually perpetuate lifelong learning. And that's what we're after. Preschool and kindergarten is just the beginning for all that they're going to experience. So fourth, I would suggest to parents that they remind themselves over and over again to try to frame things in a positive way for young children than in a negative way. Give them an alternative instead of saying, don't do that. So if it's been a wet day, there's puddles outside, you're going out for a walk, it's easy to want to say to your child, don't jump in those puddles because you're going to yes. get all wet. <laughs> and we know that's exactly what the child wants to do because right. that's a lot of fun. That's a boatload of fun, actually. So instead, the parent might turn it around and say, when we go outside, you can see there's a lot of puddles out there. Right. But you have boots on, and if you start jumping in the puddles... Guess what? The water's going to splash up on your pants. The water's going to get inside your boots. And you're probably going to be really uncomfortable. But if you just wait, when we come back inside, we'll play at the sink. And you can play with water for an hour and get your hands wet. And if you get your shirt wet, I can change your clothes while we're at home. Right. So the idea of, of giving the child an alternative instead of just saying, don't do this and don't do that because you set up kind of a negative feedback loop for children. So it's hard to remember to do that all the time, but it is really important because it it does help the child realize that I have different approaches to things that that I can put in place. Right. And I know so often as parents, we think that we have to have all this structured play and we have to plan things out or else Mm -hmm. our kid is just going to fall so far behind. But if we actually give them some space and allow their imagination and curiosity to guide them, then they'll actually end up progressing even further. Yes, so right. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about teachable moments, right. um, and we know that those moments pass quickly. Yes. So <laughs> it's really important to be on a lookout for them. When, you, when your child gets that spark and notices something or asks a question and says, well, could we go this way instead of that way on our, our trail? Or I noticed something over here. Could we do this instead? Or could we change our plans? And right. you want to be flexible. You want to be able to follow that lead because the child has the spark of an idea, right. um, something that occurred to them or they want to explore more. And the funny thing is you might learn something too um, (laughs) along with your child. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So I want to talk next about practice and rehearsal. This is essential for young children as they're learning new things. And every single adult out there has had some sort of experience listening to a child repeat something or do something (laughs) over and over and over again ad nauseum. Da-da Da, 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 whatever it is, or taking that little toy car and boom, 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 back and forth over and over and over again. And we want to tell them to stop. 
But guess what? It's really important because what the child is doing is they're practicing something until they become more comfortable with it. It might be the sounds that they're forming in their mouth. It might be the motions with their hands. It might be they're just trying something out. It might be something new. But we want to make sure that we allow that to happen. Yes. And if you stop and think about it, adults do it naturally also. How many times have you been in a restaurant where there's a family with a young child and you're going out and the child is there and you're going, oh, can you say bye-bye? Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Say bye-bye. Can you wave your hand? On and on and on, right? right I mean, we've right. all done that. So we're really giving the child what they need when we have those kinds of practice episodes. And then finally, I would mention to you that uh, role models are very, mm-hmm. very important. As I mentioned earlier, children really are astute observers mm-hmm. and they're watching everything. They're listening to everything. They're absorbing everything. We, we learn as parents to be careful what you say because you might say something that you wish your child hadn't heard and suddenly there it is repeated back to you. So they are noticing everything more than we realize sometimes. And if they see the adult using polite language, saying please and thank you, expressing kindness to someone, um, demonstrating empathy, that's going to become part of what the child feels is natural. And the child will then want to emulate that. They want to try that themselves. Whereas if, if there is acrimony in the household or if the parents are frequently scolding the child, maybe the child's not behaving, those kids are going to learn about criticism and they're going to have a tendency to want to react negatively. So we have such an important job as parents preparing our kids for the world and, and we have to be good people ourselves in right. order to make sure that, that that transcends over into what we want our children to be. So loving environments with nurturing role models, they really reduce stress for children. Right. And when stress is reduced in their environment, then we're giving them a healthy situation that actually makes it easier for them to learn. One of the things I had to learn as a young mom was that I noticed on my bad days were their bad days. And I saw this cycle happening and I started to realize, wow, when I'm stressed out, when I'm tired, when I'm a little bit more short than I should be, that's when I'm seeing those behaviors in my young kids as well. So you have to be very intentional. Like, so if you're having a a bad, stressful day, maybe you should look and see how you started the day yourself as well. And then you can just kind of turn that day around. Indeed. You know, they pick up a lot of emotional cues from us. Um, A lot from our body language, our facial expression, more than than we realize we're even communicating outwardly. But it's so true. And there's like a mirror image. So yes, indeed, (laughs) a good day and a bad day can come around when you least expect them. Yes. (laughs) That's great information. Thank you. So as parents, how can we know if my child is actually ready for kindergarten? And now I want to share with you seven key indicators. It doesn't mean that these are the only ones or the highest priority, but these tend to be things that are really important for a child who's ready to take that big step forward. So um, first on the list is the child's ability to use a restroom independently, to take care of toileting needs without someone right there. Not every child at five is ready to do that. But in, in the social environment, that becomes something that's very important. It can be embarrassing for a child if they're not able to take care of those things. Second indicator I would suggest is, can the child ask for help when needed? Can they communicate feelings along with that? So if the child is about ready to go outside with a group and is struggling to tie his shoes, 
does the child continue to get frustrated and cry? Or does the child stop, notice that there's an adult or some other older person around and say, could you help me get my shoes tied? Yes. I'm not able to do it. Because this is the difference with the child who's, who's able to manage that frustration and know what to do versus the child that's going to struggle and not understand right. how to get a problem solved. Also, if the child is sick, can that child express that instead of going outside a normal playtime and say, I need to lie down. You know, right. I'm not feeling well. Um, and that might be a stretch for some children, but we want them to be able to understand themselves and to be able to express how they are really feeling. So third indicator that's really important is the child's ability to stay focused. We often call this also task persistence. They go together. So if the child is engaged with doing a puzzle, for example, can that child stay with that task for a couple of minutes and work through it without being distracted, without thinking they want to try something else, without talking to five different people in the interim? So this is is really a, a key indicator. If they're drawing a house, can they finish the house and be proud of what they did before they get up and walk away? I would also say that demonstrating empathy and sensitivity toward others is another key indicator. To get along in a social environment means that you need to notice other people and not just what color they have on, but what about their facial expression? What about mm-hmm. the body language? All these things children are learning about when they're young. So in order for a child to, to understand how they can play cooperatively and get along in a group, they need to have empathy. Right. So if they're running around on the playground and their friend falls down and suddenly crying, does that child, the other child just run off on their own? Mm-hmm. Or does that child stop, take the time, notice that somebody else is in distress and, and then try to offer some comfort? And this is, this is a big difference between many three and four-year-olds and five-year-olds. Right. Even we as adults domain. need to learn that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I would also say that in order to succeed in kindergarten, the child needs to be comfortable with compliance. There are going to be rules. There are going to be expectations, and many of those are well-established, and children are trained of what they are, but the child needs to comply with those rules without constant reminders. So that means that the child understands when we come in the house, we take off our shoes, and we put them on a rug, and we take off our coats, and we hang them up. And when they come in the house, every time... The parents shouldn't have to say, don't forget to take off your shoes and hang up your coat. We want the child to have a level of independence there and to understand that that's that's one of the rules they have to follow. So along with that is that the child can follow two-step directions willingly, not with coercion, but follow two-step directions. So when you're finished with your lunch, you should take your plate over to the sink and throw away the used napkin. Right. Okay. And they should be able to remember those two steps and follow through and do them. And then finally, for the list of key indicators, I would say, is the child eager to learn? Is the child motivated to go out into the world and explore more and to learn more? Because that's a key to their success. The child that's able to take a few risks, that's a little bit adventurous, that's an indicator of a child who's ready for formal schooling. And in addition, we need to remember that in order for any young person, in order for any person, really, to be successful, they need to be healthy, they need to get enough sleep, Right. they need to be well-nourished. 
in order to perform, we all need to have basic equipment in place, and we need to take care of that equipment so that when we step out into the world, we can do our best. Right. And it's important as you think about these little kids adjusting to going to kindergarten at school, you know, away from parents all day long, and you need to take into consideration all of those health needs. Will they need a little bit extra sleep? Will they Are they eating snacks that are going to sustain them? You've got to start thinking ahead through all of that as well. I love that you said that. And that because you've had children, you understand yes. that. We forget how tiring it is yes. for a little one. After they're, right. they're interacting with people all day in this environment, they really are tired. They're probably right. exhausted. And so be sure to check the sleep guidelines for children because Absolutely. those are really, really important. And also the circadian rhythms are important. Mm-hmm. So most children, they need to be in bed. Children at this age, four and five years old, they can't be up to nine o'clock right. because that's off their rhythmic cycle. And lots of parents forget that. So we need to make sure they get enough sleep, but the sleep needs to be at the right points in time for them as well. Exactly. So we want to emphasize always that responsive adults yeah. <laughs> um, would be responsive to those children and understand what their needs are and to take care of making sure that they're healthy and ready for kindergarten. Yes, that's great advice. So knowing that state-by-state requirements for age varies, what would be the benefits on making sure that you start your child on time versus possibly delaying their start if you feel that they're not ready? Great question. And I know this is something that many parents struggle with, trying to figure out when is the best year for my child to start, especially when they have birthdays at a certain point in time. And I might add that parents should be sure they understand the exact day, month, and year required in your state because they do vary 50 times over. So some states, the requirement is September 30th in the year your child is five. Sometimes it's November 30th. Sometimes it's in July. So make sure you know what the rules are. Um, But it's a great question. No easy answers, really. But it does require that parents consider some basic issues that we're Mm -hmm. aware of if children start on time versus being delayed. So if your child starts on time, that means your child is entering kindergarten at the age that's required by the state with most of their peers. That is, it's more likely that your child will then progress along the physical development continuum with most of the peers. It's unlikely that in first grade, one of those children will be (laughs) eight inches taller than another child. There might be a couple inches of difference. And of course, they're going to have different body shapes and all of that. But as they move across time from K through grade five, your child is pretty much going to be in sync for the most part physically with their peers. And so physical maturation is is going to occur at certain growth stages in a similar way. And so that's a good thing. Your child's not going to feel like they don't fit in. So children who don't appear to be fully ready in terms of their, perhaps their academic skills or some of the other benchmarks we talked about, they may be 
be able to catch up really quickly. So perhaps they're not ready when school starts in August or September, but guess what? By October or November, a lot of those children have moved farther along and they might be able to manage a lot of the skills that didn't were not evident a couple months earlier. Right. So by starting the child on time, you're putting them in a stimulating environment, you're giving them the kinds of learning experiences that commensurate with their peers, and, and you're giving them lots of support probably in that environment for continuing to grow. So there can be an advantage knowing that children can catch up. Some studies, I would add, indicate that children who wait, who don't enter on time, but wait until they're the next year older, as they become adolescents and they're in a different place than the rest of the children that they're in the same grade with, those children seem to be, some of them, at risk for greater behavior problems. And this might be happening because as children move along from K1, grade K1, 2, 3, 4, 5, they're going to be going through some emotional changes along with the physical maturation. And that child who is a little older is going to reach some of those plateaus in advance of some of his peers. And so by the time they get to middle school and adolescent years, that child might feel slightly out of sync because he's gotten to this, he or she has gotten to a place before the other kids. And so that can lead to some dissonance for the child and they might have some behavior problems. That's not true for everybody, but research does show that happens for some. And middle school is hard enough for kids in terms of adjustment and feeling like they don't fit in. Mm -hmm. So to add that into the mix is definitely something parents Mm -hmm. need to consider. Yeah. It's not just kindergarten year. When you make a decision about your child's kindergarten readiness, remember what you're really talking about is school readiness, formal school readiness. And so that age bracket that they're placed with is is where they will be for the most part for many years. Yes. (laughs) In terms of delaying kindergarten, um, parents that are not sure or feel like the child really can't manage um, what's expected, what about that? You know, what happens to the child that has a delayed start, doesn't start on time? Of course, that child has a little extra time to work with so they can strengthen those skills. If they're having difficulty with early literacy, they can certainly build all of those kinds of print convention skills and early reading reading skills, and the parents can help with that in that kind of environment. They can also expand their SEL repertoire. Remember, that's the social-emotional realm. So for the shy child or the child that's having trouble being with others in a group, not really comfortable, it can give them more of a chance to build some self-confidence with encouragement from an adult. And as long as they're getting positive feedback with the, the foray into small groups bit by bit by bit, then that might be helpful for them to have a little more time to to be comfortable in their own skin and to feel that they can relate to others. The slightly older child might also have more refined set of self-regulatory skills. Remember that we talked about that that self-regulation is one of the the understated components that's really very, very important. And so that child is likely to be able to pay attention longer, probably persist with tasks longer, and probably control their impulses better um, when they're beyond where they are um, at the point when they might be able to go to kindergarten. So um, that could be the key to a child's success. So going back to the comment about 
every child being different yes. and no two children being alike. Uh, parents have to really examine, observe and examine and think about what's going to work best for each individual child in terms of readiness for right. formal schooling. Our thanks to Dr. Melissa King and Latisse Dennis for their information today. To hear more of their conversation, we'll include a link in the podcast notes. Thank you for listening to K-12 on Learning. To learn more about K-12's tuition-free public online schools, the Destinations Career Academies, or the international and private school options, go to k12.com. We invite you to subscribe so you can join us next time for K-12 on Learning.